Greetings and salutations, world. My name is Kevin K. Konkonacek, and welcome to another episode of A24 on the Rocks, the podcast where we review every single one of A24 movies in chronological order. This week's film is entitled The Adderall Diaries, and like always, we have selected a beverage of varying class and alcohol content to accompany this film. Tonight, I have Jefferson's Very Small Batch Bourbon, because I love whiskey, and, well, whiskey loves me. It also loves some of the members of our esteemed review team. So up first, we have a fellow whiskey enthusiast. Hello, Cole. Hello, my name is Cole William Whitlaw Gibson, lover of whiskey and bourbons. Today, I am drinking Highland Park 12-year, the Viking honor to uh, represent my people. Uh, up next, we got my boy, Blaze. Hey, what up, guys? It's Blaze with Gerald Ryan. Uh, tonight, I got a little double feature for y'all. I'm drinking uh, Voodoo Ranger Juice Force IPA by New Belgium and also Hazy Little Thing IPA by Sierra Nevada. Next up, we got my man from Detroit. This is Eric Kiska. I'm drinking a Float Copper Lager from Black Rocks Brewery from the Upper Peninsula. You'll see I rep a lot of Upper Peninsula stuff on this podcast because I love it. Up next, we got my (laughs) wife, Kelly. Hey, this is Eric's wife, Kelly. I'm drinking a Modelo. In contrast to everyone else, because everyone needs to be represented. Absolutely. I did say very in class and alcohol content, so we got a good mix I thought that was a shot at me, so that was... Oh, it was absolutely an intentional shot at you, but, um, you know, things change. I'm drinking moonshine (laughs) from my backyard. Hey, all right. Well, on that note, everybody, we are reviewing The Adderall Diaries, which is a 2015 American crime drama film written and directed by Pamela Romanowski, based on a true crime memoir book of the same name by Stephen Elliott. The film stars James Franco, Ed Harris, Amber Heard, and Christian Slater. The Adderall Diaries had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in April 2015 and opened in a limited release one year later by A24. Oftentimes we wait until we start giving our opinions or start answering the questions before we get into whether or not we think a movie is decent. Well, folks, I'm going to buck that trend and get this right out of the way. Stylistically overwrought and tedious, The Adderall Diaries aspires for profundity, but instead feels like a shambolic class project thrown together right before it was due. That was a quote from a film critic review on Rotten Tomatoes, but I think it sets the tone for this evening's festivities. In this podcast, we will break down an attempt to analyze the cinematic elements of this film, the performances and the themes and the ideas presented, and afterwards, you, the listener, can determine whether or not you agree with this hot take, or if you think there's more to this film than meets the eye. But before we get to all of that, and because I know our esteemed panelists are chomping at the bit to get answering these hard-hitting questions... As we're apt to often start with, what was your history with this film or the book? Had you seen it or read it before this podcast, or was this a complete brand new experience for you? Eric, why don't you start us out? Uh, Zero experience with the film or the book. Never heard of it. Uh, Never even heard of Stephen Elliott. Haven't heard of Pamela Romanowski. I've obviously heard of several of the actors in here. Uh, James Franco, Amber Heard, Ed Harris. Uh, I love Ed Ed Harris, especially in uh, A Beautiful Mind. I actually, fun fact, I watched that movie when I was in the eighth grade, and I started writing math equations all over my wall, on uh, my bedroom wall, 
And yeah, I, I thought I was schizophrenic, but I wasn't. But yeah, uh, fun fact. <laughs> you didn't, in fact, have a beautiful yes. life. Yes, either way. Um, I definitely knew some of the actors in here, but I did not know about the movie or the book. Anybody else with a uh, differenting answer to that? No? No. Yeah, no. Same thing. Um, I knew the movie existed, I suppose, in the sense of, of being released while I was alive. But outside of that, no idea until we got to this list. So this film is a work of fiction based on a work of nonfiction. So what are your feelings in general about movie adaptations to books? We have watched several in our, in our uh, adventure here. Spectacular Now, Enemy, Under the Skin, The Room, and The End of the Tour, just to name a couple that were all based on novels, and we generally enjoyed those films. So where does this one land? Obviously not necessarily as high as some of those, but when we are talking about adopting novels into movies, kind of where's your opinion in, on that, and how does this one fall? Kelly? After I had watched this movie and I started looking into some conversations that were being had about it, I looked into the book reviews. And before I even go further on my experience reading those because that's a thing i got a lot of the end of the tour kind of vibes from this movie in a way if the editing was different i could see it kind of laying maybe in the same bed together if that makes sense so this kind of like unreliable narrator and the way that a movie is kind of filmed around that idea i think that this movie has so much potential, and I'll talk about that more as we go on, as I'm sure we all will. But I looked into kind of the book and people's reviews on it, and there was it was love or hate situation, which I greatly appreciate about any kind of medium, anything that's out, because it invokes a strong reaction, which I think is very interesting. So more hate than love, much like the movie. Um, and I think that that's like the elephant in the room as we continue talking about this. But with the book, it's the same kind of thing. But a lot of people saying that it's very like a self-centered book and other people that are like, I like how raw it is. I guess there's a lot of grammatical and spelling errors and there's a lot of things that aren't followed like in a traditional way. So that interested me a lot. It's an interesting way to take them. And I wish that I could almost even watch the book or sorry, read the book to kind of get more of what this source material was and then the adaptation, because I think that it might make me appreciate the movie more knowing where it came from. So I hope that that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think uh, there's something to be said about the where and the whys of how a book can, gets created and how it becomes a movie as well. Um, and I think we'll probably talk about that, as you kind of mentioned later on. Anybody else have a strong opinion on book adaptations to movies, particularly this one, or, um, you know, kind of how it felt uh, with, with that? Blaze, what do you think? Just in general, there's certain, like, books that kind of lend its ear to be made a movie. Like, you look at, like, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, stuff that's fantastic. That, and then you look at uh, works of nonfiction, I guess, would be the best way to put the book. It's very hard. It seems very, very hard to put this book in particular into the movie format because it covers so many different bases, and then it has to have its own style, and then it has to have its own movie-esque twists. I, I, I think I'm generally for movie adaptations of books but you need to have the right people involved because i'm sure we'll get into it more but there is a lot of rushedness of this movie especially in the first and third acts 
And I think that maybe they could have done it better with a different team, but it felt like it fell on its face a lot, um, especially with the through points that it was trying to get. That was probably explained better in the book. Maybe not this movie, but in general, I'm for movies being or books being adapted into movies. So. No, I think the combination of both your answers kind of nails it in this circumstance. Uh, you need a, a story. You need people in your story, and you don't need it to just be about you as far as a book to be able to become a movie. This book was very centered around our author and very much about his and her life. Doesn't necessarily always translate to a good movie. But I digress. I think we should move on. We get a quote to open up this film, right? And it's, We understand the world by how we retrieve memories, reorder information into stories to justify how we feel. And it was painted on the screen in black, and then we kind of get moving. We've got some quotes in our A24s in the past, and some mixed reviews from all of you. This one particularly is an interesting one, because there's a ton of words on the screen. For me, it doesn't make a ton of sense at first glance, and as a viewer trying to get involved into a movie, it was jarring to say the very least. Cole, what did you think about that opening shot with a quote, and kind of your first thoughts when when seeing that? <clears throat> so my first thoughts were uh, I had a very similar experience as to many of the A twenty four films. Was um, it was I couldn't hear anything, and I was like, is this another one of those movies where I just like can't hear anything? And turns out this time my headphones were not on, so uh, <laughs> there was sounds. I went back and had to fix that one, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, the the I kind of knew what I was getting into, the fact that none of us had seen or heard of this film. And then it started with that quote in, you know, artistic writing and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those movies that tries to, like, invoke a lot of feelings and stuff. But it's probably going to fall flat on its face. And then at the opening scene, <laughs> uh, my first comment for the opening scene was this is like the movie up but like way worse in terms of the story that they're trying to convey so quickly about you know this guy's mother and his dying and all this like oh we're a happy family and the death and then destruction and all this stuff and I was like man up came out you know five or six years before this movie and they did such a better job so that's my initial all right I appreciate that and blaze what do you got there bud so it's so funny because what I wrote down was because it was home video footage. I was like, this is the beginning of Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and, and we've been talking about tropes in this like crop of A24 films. And I think that's an important thing is like a very strange movie trope is like home video grainy footage. When you want to tell a story really fast about like loving family and then fathers, especially missing fathers and grainy home footage go hand to hand in cinema, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric, I wanted to ask you, in later interviews, um, Pamela Romanowski would state how important that quote was for the entirety of the entire film. She basically said all the themes of that script were based off one line. And as a screenwriter, how do you think that helps or hinders a writer when you kind of say, this is my entire focus, this one line, and everything has to be based around this idea? Um, I think it is, like, when you start to write a screenplay or set out to write a screenplay, you do want to have a theme in mind. I guess sticking to one quote, I guess if it drives the theme, maybe it can work, but I think when you write, some people are meticulous about their screenwriting and map out every single scene until the end of a movie, and other people, they might not even know what's going to happen the next scene. They just kind of write and do it on the fly, and it's kind of whatever works for the screenwriter. In this case, I don't think it worked because I, this film seemed very scatterbrained and all over the place. And yeah, that quote, 
we yeah understand the world by how we retrieve memories, reorder information into stories to justify how we feel. I there's a TV show called The Affair that I think did different memories very well. Uh, basically, the, the whole premise of the affair was that the start of one episode comes from one person's memory, and the end of the other episode delves into another person's memory of the same situation. And it, it's a whole take on kind of how we remember things differently, which is what I think this film was trying to say overall. They just did a kind of a poor job of doing it. And uh, many, many a Sunday night with my mother drinking wine when I came home from uh, college, being a basic white woman and uh, loving that show. But then it, then it <laughs> fell off. It, it got pretty bad. But either way. Cole, go ahead. Yeah, so I didn't realize that uh, I, that's a very interesting quote from the, uh, the screenwriter that the, they based the whole thing off of a quote instead of basing it off of the memoir that it, this movie is actually supposed to be about. They had like a whole book and memoir and that's what they decided to go off of. And honestly... It, kind of seems to coincide with the quality we got here with that quote with that opening i'm no professional movie reviewer but i am a professional graphic designer so if you'll allow me to be pretentious for one moment the font choice and brushwork on utilizing that quote was gorgeous and really set up a certain kind of atmosphere for this movie if they did it in a different font it would have been a lot worse so i just have to say, like, my first impressions of this movie was, I think this might be okay, just based on the that use of font right away. So, to quick aside, then, the font moves into these nostalgic home videos that we talked about, and then all of these quick-cut montage clips that are stylistically put together. Did you lose it right away as soon as it went into that part of the movie? This, any kind of media that then gets older over time. I think we immediately are shown then Timothy Chalamet, which at the time of this movie release would have meant one thing, probably relatively unknown, and about to become what we now know as Timothy Chalamet. So I think having him, having seen him in so many movies that are also very artistic, seeing this artistic choice for that quote and knowing from the way that it was shown to us that it needed to stick in my head through the movie. That was... The impression that I got from it, it was really strong, like artistic choice right there with the home movies and then seeing that actor. I, it's hard to remove his star power and the impression that that left on me having seen it in today's time. But I think that the impact would be similar. So here's a fun fact. You know me as the guy who never watched any movie at all. So guess what? I had zero idea who this man was. And we're going to put a pin in this because we're going to talk about this when we get to the actors and the actresses. But leave that in your mind. Timothy Chalamet, that name and face meant nothing to me until today. I know, right? Crazy. I live under a rock. No, I mean, I know Dune's a book and I know it's a movie and I know it's fantastic and I want to watch it. I guess Timothy hasn't entered the the arena of WWE yet, so... Oh, right, yeah, right. But apparently he's a sex symbol, and that's a thing now. But if he played shortstop for the Yankees, you'd know who he was. Yeah, damn straight, damn straight. (laughs) Okay, cue our main character, Stephen Elliott, played by James Franco. The first scenes we see him in are while he is doing a book signing in his apartment in the New City. He has his computer, and he's on a call with his publisher about a shiny new book deal. Life seems to be pretty good for him. It's clear that we're meant to root for this guy, and this book deal is going to be a linchpin in his story. 
As the story progresses, the viewer is shown more flashbacks to Stephen's childhood, meant to be seen from the perspective of a 13-year-old kid who just ran away and no one in the world except his best friend. So we got done talking about this memory montage, but here we are again, using it right off the bat and using it in the exact same way that they used it in the first 30 seconds of the film. So did any of our opinions change or were we just kind of rolling our eyes that we had more of this stylistic saturation of colors, slow-mo, and just generally an interesting take on slow-mos? Blaze? Uh, yeah, at that point in the movie, I was still with it um, for the most part. I think, again, I didn't know how the movie was going to progress. So I thought, you know, if they had to get this cleaning under the way, let us, you know, know these actors without a heavy exposition dump or something like that. I, I, I was into the memories. I thought um, it was a cool way. And it does kind of like come back towards the end because of how uh, Elliot, I know his name's Steven, but he goes by Elliot in the movie how Elliot, like, misremembers things, and I think it's... I get what they were trying to go for in the fact that they show the memories from one perspective, and then as the movie progresses, they show it from a different perspective. So at the time, especially, like, when you're just trying to get to know the characters, I was completely okay with them rolling back, uh, back-to-back memory montage uh, 70s grainy clips. <laughs> Excellent. So after the identity of our main character has kind of been established, the film shifts to the part of the plot that focuses around this true crime element of the story, which for me is just baffling in its own sense, but I digress again. Uh, Steve is at the bar with what appears to be a group of his close friends all watching a basketball game, Ohio State versus Michigan, which was in the Big Ten tournament in 2010, oddly enough. And afterwards, Fez turns on the news. Yes, Wilmer Valderrama <laughs> from that 70s show is in this film. The news is carrying a story about the true life events of the murder trial of Hans Reiser, who is described as making the Linux operating system and as being a nerdy celebrity. I know Cole is chomping at the bit to go ahead and just rip this scene apart because there was so many things wrong with it from a factual standpoint, but it did a pretty good job of at least introducing our character as a guy who has a bunch of buddies and is interested about uh, a murder trial. So Cole, give me, give me the short version of what was wrong with this scene. Yeah, so uh, first thing, uh, Fez was a standout cameo. He showed up in the film, like, twice. Just absolutely, like, zero, like, reason for him to be there, but I liked it. Uh, Yeah, and the part where they started describing Hans as the Linux operating system guy was uh, a little annoying because he had absolutely, like, nothing to do with actually developing the Linux operating system. He, like, made, like, a file organizer for that used that you could use in Linux, which is still active and it's still being updated to this day and it's named after him. So I always find that kind of hilarious, this convicted murderer who later like even admitted that he did it and like showed the body and everything like that. And the company that he was running eventually went under and then all these people are like, you know what, we need to keep this guy's legacy alive and just keep updating this thing because God damn it, we need to make Linux better pro murder <laughs> but yeah it was very annoying and then uh the basketball game with the ohio state uh u of m i remember watching that game and it was definitely not the same year that that guy went to prison or jail so <laughs> right 2007 was the year of the trial the basketball game was 2010 and i have no idea what they were trying to portray as far as the year that they were doing this all in i also don't but know that's... why it was u of m in ohio state like I, I i'm sure someone had some affiliation to those schools or whatever I got nothing. I have nothing. So as our movie continues, we see more of Steven, 
um, and we get introduced to our Amber Heard character. Um, what did we think about Amber Heard's performance in general as the love interest of our main character? Um, where do you think the good parts of her role were and some of the side, you know, some of the lower parts and kind of uh, just in general impression of her character? Eric, what do you think? Complete shite. Bullshit. Get off my screen. I, so she was supposed to portray this like New York Times journalist. Both my parents are journalists and they are not these kind of... I, she she portrayed it as Amber Heard playing Lena Edmond, which is she's kind of a Hollywood sex symbol. So she portrayed it as a Hollywood sex symbol playing a journalist, which was just very weird to see. Yeah, I, I was not very convinced by her character and I, I feel she was just kind of there to bring the plot along, you know, as a lot of uh, one-dimensional female characters are in film, so. Yeah, Kelly, what did you think of the uh, one-dimensional, or not, performance of Miss Amber? The first thing that stood out to me, so I'll say her performance was mid to bad, and the thing that was even worse, and I'm sorry to shit on the hair and makeup department, but the wig on her head (laughs) was ridiculous, so... I just had to say that as well. It was well, a... No, go, go ahead. It, I was going to say, the wig on Timothy Chalamet was also ridiculous. That thing was absolutely fucking crazy. All that long hair and the weird shaving and, yeah, just bad wig job in general across this whole film. The hair and makeup needs... They, they can take some pointers from this film. What I will say also about her character, I know that a better love story than Twilight is a meme. This was kind of a love story that was equal to Twilight in the weird way that they delivered their lines to each other and her going... I have something to do. Oh, wait, is that your ride? I'm driving your motorcycle. Oh. I was like, whoa. And then they're having sex immediately. So the <laughs> like rapid fire instant relationship was pretty wild. But what I will say, and this is no credit to her acting job necessarily, but as far as depth of her character, we'll probably touch on this more, but the way that both of them have childhood trauma and the way that he embodies it and she buries it, I thought was a very interesting dichotomy between the two of them. And I think it added a lot to her character. And I think that that part of it, she portrayed well. I think we should talk about that right now, actually, Um, because the relationship between her character and Jane Franco character is incredibly important to the rest of the direction of this film. Blaze, do you think that these two playing off of each other uh, worked out well in this circumstance? What were some of the kind of the things you took away from their performances while they were both in the room together? Um, kind of just give us your, your rundown on what you thought. Well, <laughs> I'm about to blow some minds. Uh, I thought Amber Heard was my favorite part about the movie. I wish she was in the movie more. <laughs> Let's go what? give me your controversial opinion. So I really felt like you guys are saying that she was a plot mover, but I thought the way I, I think uh James Franco's character Elliot, uh he played the most natural him as bad boy with a fragile ego. I think he played his best in front of her because, you know, he was trying to impress her and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, again, she didn't get a lot of screen time. And the screen time that she did get, I think it really helped develop a story of the stuff that James Franco was going through in the ways that his father and his friend character didn't really um, let him do. They were just kind of angry at him. And she kind of peeled back um, the more trauma that he at least felt that he thought he felt during the movie. (laughs) 
So yeah, I really enjoyed their chemistry. Again, that wig was pretty awful. And just to say that, you know, people aren't impressed by a cool vintage bike. Can't You can't write it off like, you know, oh, well, that would never happen in real life because you've never had a vintage bike. So you don't know that that wouldn't happen. You know, I, I, I do think it's flawed in some aspects, but I really did think that she was the best part. And I think her character did a really good job at getting out and staying out because in a different story, when they wrapped the clean little bow at the end, she would have came back to him. And you know what? After she gave him the papers, you never saw her again. So kudos on them for that. All right, Cole. You're up. Uh, so, Blaze, I love you, but so much of what you just said is wrong. First <laughs> off, the best person in this whole film was the guy who played Roger. He was my favorite. He's the best. James Franco's best friend in this film, by far the best. Amber Heard sucked, and that whole motorcycle scene was so fucking stupid. It drove me crazy. I absolutely hated it. Where she just, like, walks up and it's like, Oh, is that yours? I'm driving. First off, no one who owns a motorcycle and as a motorcycle owner is just like, I'm fucking driving. It's like, that's not what you say. Also, she just hops on and kickstarts it. No key or anything. That bike requires a key. I don't know what's happening to that scene, but she's just like immediately jumps on his bike, kickstarts it. It's like, I'm fucking going. And he's he's just completely fine with it. And they're just like, yeah, we're going to have a great time. Uh, I hated it, and from that scene, I am, that was like the peak where I was just like, this movie is fucking trash. And this was after like all of the weird, like at this point we had, I think, like three or four storylines, and we're like 20 minutes into this film, nothing is making sense, and they hop on a motorcycle and it just pisses me off. Go ahead, Eric. Eric. Eric, go ahead. And I also want you to tell me why you think they included that particular scene when you're done with your The movie. motorcycle scene? Yes. Uh, it was, you know, just a vehicle to get them to, you know, make it out eventually, I think. Literally a vehicle. <laughs> but, like, continue with your point. Very nice, old school, like, 70s Honda. Yeah. Give it some respect. Unlike Amber Heard, who just fucking <laughs> trashed it. So, James Franco, to me, plays himself in this movie. He is James Franco playing Stephen Elliott and Roger. Definitely gave me Seth Rogen in this movie. From the second I saw him making a penis pancake, I was like, okay, Seth Rogen, James Franco, Pineapple Express, thrown in with some child abuse and childhood trauma. You know, we're we're right here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Roger watering the hydrangeas with his dance moves was a highlight. Seth Rogen. And he even goes like, oh, oh, oh," you know, like Seth Rogen. (laughs) I I mean, I agree with you. The the pancake taint was about as close as you need to to know when it comes to that. Okay. A fairly pivotal scene uh, happens pretty early on, and we are introduced to Stephen's father, Neil, played by Oscar-nominated actor Ed Harris. Stephen is doing a book reading uh, from his bestseller titled apart, uh, reading from a segment detailing the death of his father. Much to the shock and dismay of Stephen and the crowd, Neil is not dead, like his son claims in the memoir, but very much alive. So, how did you feel during this scene? Did Arid Harris introduce himself well enough as a character, and could you feel the awkwardness in the room? Blaze, go ahead. Yeah, I was, as someone who did no, like, research prior to watching this movie, I was kind of shocked because it wasn't leading up to, uh, I knew knew there had to be 
another wrench because they already threw six wrenches in the first 30 minutes of this film. So when his dad stepped up, I did not know what direction they were going to take. I also like not to be a coal about this, but doesn't that like automatically ruin your career? There's no like saving your career after you totally lied. What's the uh, Oprah guy, Million Little Pieces? As soon as they found out that he wasn't a drug addict, he was no longer an author anymore. Shia LaBeouf, so he he certainly still has a career. Shia LaBeouf, no, the the guy. I'm saying like people that have lied about their life and then uh, you know continue on. Uh, Well, I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) Monte (laughs) Teo. There's some examples of famous people lying and getting away with it. (laughs) There are a lot of examples of people that have lied about their life. Okay, I'm saying for a guy who just got famous and is just an author. How about that? Yeah, I'll go with that. Million Little Pieces, that works perfectly. I Um, I thought his introduction was uh, genuinely shocking, and like I said, I didn't know which way they were going to take it. I don't know if he was like a guy pretending to be his dad, or he was his real dad. And then it kind of, the brakes kind of hit really hard, because James Franco, or Elliot, I'm sorry, didn't even like defend himself. He was almost blasé about it, and he was like, yeah, it happened, but you know, I still got this deal with Penguin House, I still got these short stories, and his... Um, his editor, who was uh, Jen Davis, played by Cynthia Nixon, who, oddly enough, because she's from Sex and the City, she just must be typecast as best friends of author. She's, like, in crisis mode, and he doesn't care. So I don't know if that's just him, like, projecting from his youth or whatever, but uh, I do think the intro of his father was uh, shocking, but uh, the way they followed up on it was probably less than shocking. I'll uh, agree with you completely that it was a jolting experience when it was revealed that that father was actually alive and that he was in there. Uh, the first time he he mumbles bullshit or something, I kind of was like, was that real? Did I hear something? I wasn't really sure. And then he stands up in the whole process. But I agree that it was it was a jarring scene in general, and it kind of was like, wow, all right. All of a sudden, we have this completely different take on this character. Before, we feel a little sympathetic for the guy, right? We see the uh, abuse scenes. We're feeling like he's a guy that we want to root for and being on the same team. And all of a sudden, we kind of find out that he's a fraud in this circumstance. And that definitely changes the viewer's perspective on on that character as we kind of move forward. Anybody else want to throw in on uh, Ed Harris's performance or kind of that first introductory uh, scene with his father? Yeah. Kelly, you got anything? I'll give you both. I think that Ed Harris was like a powerhouse as far as his acting in that movie, he completely sold it to me. I thought that he did a great job. And I think that this scene is one of the most impactful for me as well, because of the surprise. I was completely surprised. I was like, this surely is his uncle who saw everything that happened. But then when you find out that our author and narrator main character has lied about it, I also didn't think that it was like a career ending thing. Eric and I watched this together. And when his father finished spewing a bunch of vitriol his son's way i was like okay you just proved your point and what a great pr moment to be honest but i could understand if he doesn't react the right way what a crisis that this situation could be but telling a story about your father even if you're saying it's real if you haven't talked to him in six years and you have such an awful experience with him telling a story about him being dead and how you would feel about it is just as good as him being so I, I just didn't see it as like career ending. It was interesting the way that the characters all responded to that. And I think that his editor was a great character as well. And the kind of contrast of her reaction compared to our main character, all of it was really interesting to me. I was still pretty invested in the movie at this point. 
isn't it interesting that we talk about a movie almost in phases when it comes to that? That it had us kind of still interested and hooked and in, in thinking about this from a decent perspective, and then all of a sudden just takes a 180 and nosedives. And I'm sure we'll get to the reasons for that, but if we don't, it's just still something to take into point because at this point in the movie, we feel still there's something to it, and then it all kind of runs off the rails. Can I add on so that soon, yeah, before please, we continue to? Is that we yeah. all discussed, and I'm sure people listening to this have as well, that this movie is poorly reviewed. So I think we were all aware of that going into it. So it's almost like you watch until the moment that you're like, oh, this is why it's bad. And it's hard to get just a fresh, like, raw, how do just you as a person feel about watching this movie? So that's just something in this day and age that you can't avoid when you watch a movie. Yeah, 100%. There's no way to get away from the general public when it comes to that stuff. Cole, want to toss in on that? Yeah, uh, so one of my favorite podcasts is uh, How Did This Get Made, and they dive into like some of the reviews for movies and stuff that are terrible, and uh, I started doing that uh, with some of the stuff we've watched. Amazon is by far the nicest and gives like amazing reviews to everything for some reason. Like Even this movie has a three and a half out of five stars, but 40% of them are five star. Like People really like this movie uh, on Amazon, so they are out there. But, man, oh, man, this movie sucked, though, in real life. <laughs> really Anybody else want to throw in, in on the conspiracy theory that Amazon is uh, fluffing their movie review numbers to try to get more people to buy their shit? If you think it's uh, good, favorite, you buy it. Though, yeah, my favorite is uh, one lady said that she loved everything about this movie except for Amber Heard's wig. So she's on point with Kelly. I don't know if Kelly wrote it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> everything else, though, fantastic, right? Kelly K from Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) It was your review the whole time. Anyway, soon after the interruption of the book reading, we see Stephen seeking refuge from his feelings by turning to his kink. That's right. Sadomasochism shows up. Masochism, thank you, shows up, better known as BDSM for our listeners. Basically, Stephen Elliott gets off by people putting cigarettes out on him, choking him, etc. Apparently, these activities are detailed in much greater detail in the book, even though we get a decent amount, if not a gratuitous amount, of these scenes in the movie. So, Eric, why was it necessary to have multiple sex scenes and trying to hammer home this dude just loves getting dominated? (laughs) Uh, So I I thought, like, okay, when I watched this movie... uh, at first watch before I did any more research on the book uh, I was like okay one scene would have been fine why do we have to show James Franco multiple times you know getting uh, you know getting masochistic stuff done to him Um, and I was so confused like why do you just keep like showing this it just takes up so much of the movie that and it doesn't need to be there when it can only you, you could do it once, and you'd get the point across. And then I, like, looked at the book just before we started doing this, and I guess it is a big part of the book and his life. And it is supposed to be like, okay, I was abused as a child, and it turned me into a, a masochist. James Franco, again, is just, like, playing himself while uh, these scenes are going on. I just don't think it came across well. Maybe if they did it a little more artistically or something, we could have gotten more out of those BDSM scenes, but they didn't, so... 
Yeah. yeah, it was certainly jarring, right? You just come out of absolute left field. I thought it was another scene with Amber Heard all of a sudden until she started speaking in a Russian accent. Very and I was short like, what scene, the too. Shit yeah, is going on. <laughs> Anybody else want to throw in and why they felt the the necessity of adding these sex scenes or this particular type of sex scenes and comment how it either helped or pulled away from the film in general? Kelly, what do you think? I think that they were absolutely necessary to understanding our character. And for me, it really changed my perspective on him, even before all of his friends kind of pointed it out to him. So I'll kind of say what I mean by that is with him being a masochist, and he knows it too, he can't really like have a relationship with this budding love that he does kind of want to care about because she's not on the same page as him, which is made pretty apparent. And he clearly goes to like BDSM clubs to get what he needs. So that also then tells us more about who he is as a person. And we are shown all these things as we are understanding more and more that he's unreliable as far as telling us what has happened to him and making that his whole life and deciding to write books about it and deciding to... He self-defined himself with his trauma and with being the victim. And that's a big part of what this movie is, is... Are you, the villa- are you the victim? Are you the villain in your own narrative? And what are other people in your narrative? And do you even have to be one or the other? Is there an in-between? So it just adds a lot of layers to what could have just been a, like a blank story that I think could have been understood. And I know there's a lot going on in this movie. I think that this was an important aspect that needed to be added, especially there's the scene, and maybe we'll get to this too. I know we're already at 40 minutes talking about it, where Amber Heard chokes him and he asks her to do it, but he asks her to open up and she, like I had previously discussed, her way of dealing with things was by burying it down. And he asks her to act it out with me, like in this scene together, I want you to do this to me. And his reaction to it is, I love you. And her reaction is, I'm getting the fuck out of here. So it just then also just puts that dichotomy between them because it does embody then not just who you are as a person and how you see yourself, but it trickles down into every aspect of your life. So I like that they included that. It was gratuitous for sure. I think that they picked these actors and wanted to show them in these scenes a lot and that would be part of it as well, but I'm glad that it was all shown. Do you think they could have just done it with one scene, though, as opposed to multiple scenes? That's that's kind of what I thought. But I think there's a ramping so, up to it. Like, the first thing we see is the cigarette burn. Sorry, Kevin, I know you want to talk to No, too. no, please. I want you and to as well. they confuse us, like Kevin said, where I thought it was Amber Heard doing it. But then you see, like, oh, he's, like, in a scene. Like, this is... He, like, goes to do these kind of things with people he isn't even in an intimate relationship, necessarily. And then you see, like, it ramps up, and he does more than... It starts at one point and gets to more extreme. And if we just saw just one extreme scene, I don't think that it would have stuck or, like, made as much of an impression. And for me, it's it's the place that they inserted the scenes, too. It clearly comes after traumatic points in his life or when things are really bad or really frustrating for him. And that's when he needs to have that, like I said, that release almost to get to that point where it's like everything's going really, really bad and he doesn't know what else to do. So he turns to the abuse, which is just weird, if you really want to look at that whole thing. But maybe there's real-life stuff inside with that. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know how the whole thing works. But I'm sure there was reasoning behind it. But I just 
don't know what it was, and I'm not sure that you can put it into a film to be easily understood. Blaze, do you have anything you want to throw in this whole situation before we continue on? Yeah, I think I agree with both Eric and Kelly. I feel like it was a very pivotal part of Elliot's character. Uh, but also, I agree with Eric is that in a movie where there's like five or six plot lines and three of them haven't moved in 20 minutes, I really feel like it, it cut one of them out. You know, there was the there was the binding scene. There's the cigarette burning scene. There was the choking scene. There was the uh, whatever self debauchery after Amber Heard uh, or Lena breaks up with him. So bath, I feel like, scene. yeah, I feel like. <laughs> In a movie where, you know, you're trying to get six things done in an hour and a half, straight line it to two or three important things about the book and get to a conclusion there. But when you're, like, trying to juggle everything, like Eric said, I think it they kind of overdid it. Like, by the second or third time, you're like, okay, we get it, but what about the true crime part? You haven't even talked about that. I, I, I do think they're important, like Kelly said. I do think they really revealed a lot about uh, how Elliot you know, reacts to trauma in his life. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you're, you're, you're cutting precious time in this movie. So, uh, use it better. <laughs> you know, my advice. All right, Cole, what's your, uh, your final opinion on this, uh, that controversial sex inclusion? I mean, I'm always pro kink. So I was definitely for it. Uh, <laughs> my main issue in that scene was, uh, with, with the Amber Heard part, where she's like choking him out and then he like wakes up and says I love you and then she's like I can't do this and then leaves. Uh, the very next scene he's like calling her and she's like never call me again and that was like the end of it. Like that whole story arc just like died. And I went back and rewatched that scene after I finished the movie because I was like I felt like I missed something. Like I felt like there was something where I missed where they like completely broke up and it was like no, no, the, the that was the phone call like that. That was it. And I was like, well, that was just a complete waste of time. And again, a 90-minute film that had so much going on that never fleshed out anything. And that, I was just like, well, that was completely, like, they should have just focused on everything else. And I, I get why they had to do the true crime, because it was part of the book. But even that just seemed kind of like an afterthought in general. Which is crazy, because the whole book was kind of spun and penned as this true crime thing and even the movie even in the trailer it comes across as this true crime thing but it never is not once at any point during this movie does it have any suspense or any mysticism related to crime or any of that no, so it's just a news story that's on in yeah. the background and they're like yeah you see this crazy shit going on actually let's talk about this now yeah let, let's let's do this whole psychology introspective <laughs> thing about yeah. my life instead in a way though anyway much like his, go kelly his obsession with this true crime story is another way of him harming himself it's another like masochistic kind of thing that he wants to sit there and be for lack of better term, I know it's overused, triggered by this whole story that's going on in the courtroom, and it's why he wants to be so close to it. And here's a small tidbit in real life, um, and I don't have the name in front of me, but apparently Stephen Elliott, our real-life author, was in the same BDSM circle as one of the people accused or in this story. Stephen, I wish I remember his last name, uh, knew the the uh, murderer, and they were all in the same circles. So... BDSM also yeah, plays Kevin, a little bit to play in that. I saw that as well, and I was like, they should have included that in the movie. Wait, there was too much going on, so they right, didn't Right, yeah, you don't have enough time out. to include that. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So much like the rapidness of our film, the rapidness of the rest of this podcast is going to kind of continue to move forward. So as the film progresses, we get varying scenes from the trial of Hans Reiser, Steven's relationship struggles, and we watch his personal and professional life collapse around him. His publisher leaves him, and at the height of it is all, his father tells him he's dying and doesn't have much time left. As a viewer, we much get the impression that Steven is heading towards the brink. As he describes in the movie, he feels like he's underwater. So did at any point during this film, did you feel like there was going to be a redemption at the end for Steven? Did you find yourself wondering whether this story would even have a happy ending? And did you even care? Yeah, I, I did think that there was going to be a redemption for him. I, I do feel like this whole movie was uh, leading towards self-realization. And I could see that when Stephen Elliott met, him, met up with him at the hotel, I could tell, okay, this movie is leading towards them repairing their relationship. And uh, Stephen Elliott, all of you know, his Adderall addiction and all these self-destructive uh, behaviors that he has, he, he's going to come to some kind of self-realization of this. Did I care? Not really. <laughs> I just think it wasn't well done. And uh, it, it didn't make me care about the main character and what ended up happening to him, especially because it was so scattered all the time. I, I didn't get a ton of character building uh, from this movie. Cole, did you find yourself giving a, a shit whether or not Steven was going to come out on the other end of all this? Uh, no, not really. And I I thought that they were probably going to do it, especially when his dad came in and he kept, like, he was very persistent with, uh, like, talking to him about stuff and I was like oh there's probably something going on and they're gonna rekindle and they're gonna be like oh we're gonna you know have a happy family again and you know I like the concept where they went with this film one of the good things about it was you know the perception of memories versus realities and everyone's memories of certain things and recalling certain traumatic events and how people process it and stuff I really like that concept, but this one just did it so poorly, and then at the end it was just like, yeah, me and my dad, we still kind of hate each other, but I'm going to drive him to the airport. Kelly, did you also kind of get the same impression from Cole when it came to those particular scenes as far as, you know, embracing that theme of memories that we're trying to kind of come across from the entire film? Yeah, I like that there are parts of it where they talk about the perspective from the two of them from the suicide attempt for example, of I chained you up in the basement because I was scared shitless. And you see the notes from the hospital that say the dad is inconsolable. But from the kid's perspective, and this is a child who is acting out because his dad moved on without him and then chained him to the basement until he passed out. So both of them are victim and villain in a way. And it's clear which one is more of a villain. It's the adult in the situation. But there's a lot of adults that are ill-prepared to handle things that deal, like, who knows what kind of crap's going on with his dad. I'm sure the same kind of crap happened to him, and he never dealt with it. And our char- our main character is in the same pathway if he doesn't deal with it. And I think that all of the characters in this movie converge to tell him, hey, deal with it, or you're going to continue this cycle. So they go through kind of that from each person's perspective in detail. And then Cole was talking just now about they decide to drive to the airport together. And before that, they talk about a scene where they both had, you taught me how to drive when I was 14 and here's the car we were in. Weird, because I remember us being in this car and this is the way you drove. And it's more subtle. There's like 
less vitriol. They're starting to like move past, like not move past, but they're able to kind of both share a memory that isn't as intense and like defining for them. So there's progress there. And then they communicate the fact that, hey, we both need to get to this end goal together of getting to the airport. And the way we're going to do it is we are not going to talk in the car. So open, more open communication is a great step and a less traumatic shared memory and conversing about that is a good step too. I found at some point when I was preparing for this podcast, kind of looking at my own life inevitably, because as a mid 30 something year old, if you find yourself in that situation, right, you're the opening scene of our movie, we have pure bliss. And he talks about how she's the most beautiful person and the most beautiful woman in the whole planet. And you can really feel that emotion. And then all of a sudden she dies. And during their conversation, he talks about being so confused and not having any idea what to do. And just, I'm not rationalizing his violence guys. I really am not, but I would just wonder what I would do in a circumstance where I would be if that all of those things kind of fell around my head at the exact same time. And it's just an odd point to look at from kind of just thinking this is the reason that this book got written and kind of all the things that we've been discussing in general. So it's just a personal touch on, on all of that. But I feel like we're moving towards the conclusion of the story, at least. We have plenty more to talk about when it comes to some of the other aspects of this film. But the story part of it, we kind of wrap up... Um, we just put a little bow on it, right? We see them driving to the to the, apparently the airport, and that's all we get. So our final scenes are of Stephen and his father one last time before Neil flies home, and of Hans leading police to the body. We get the inclusion of some of the home videos from the opening, and it fades to black. Blaze, what was your immediate reaction in the ending when it first hit the black? What was your first thoughts? Mm, rushed, um, inconclusive. I uh, just going back like a little bit when the the guy from Linux gets found guilty of murdering his wife. I felt like Kelly kind of alluded to it. It, it just it just felt so abrupt and like it could have just been a minor part, but they made it seem like so important. And I was really let down at the ending in that respect. I know this movie is kind of a narcissist wet dream, so I really <laughs> feel like they wanted to paint. Elliot, who's a real person in the best light as possible, is a guy who just made mistakes. So he becomes friends with his best friend from childhood again. He sort of reconciles with his dad. You know, he gets the, uh, maybe not the dream gig, but he still, you know, gets to write for a living. And I really felt incomplete. I, I don't know if a longer runtime would have helped this movie in the end, but uh, it made me feel like there were either parts of the story that are missing or uh, more that they needed to tell in order to get the write off into the sunset ending. So yeah, I guess, I, I guess confused and just like that's it was like kind of my initial reaction to the ending of uh, this film. Eric, same question. Fades to black. What are your first emotions? Uh, I, I do feel kind of what blaze said. It was very inconclusive and, it's like, hey, all right, we repaired these parts of uh, his life, and now he gets to move on, keep writing. And I, I didn't feel any emotional blow from it or anything. I, I didn't feel like I, you know, took anything away from this film that I didn't know coming into it. 
I, yeah, I, I didn't think the acting was well done enough to make me care about the characters. And so it overall just kind of, it left me flat at the end. We had talked about earlier in the um, pod how the movie opened with all of these stylistic flashbacks to the past. Um, and now we get a callback here at the end with even more of an impressive scene of more shots of a giant collage of things happening as we get all of this text going across the screen, um, talking about basically you know how are we bettering ourselves and maybe it's for the best that things have fallen apart and I want to cast myself in someone else this time and something for the better. I really enjoyed that scene. I thought it wasn't even so much of a scene. It felt like an art project almost. Like there was just so much happening. I wanted to stop it and rewatch it and stop it and rewatch it because there was just, it was really cool. It was like, like I said, an interactive collage or something that I was seeing in front of me that pulled all the parts of the movie put together. Did anybody else have maybe a similar reaction or maybe just kind of a thought on that callback and that ending in particular? Kelly? It was very reminiscent. And this is why I think part of why you might like it, Kevin, is because it made me think of Amy and the way that they would show those clips of her and her handwriting on top of it. And this was kind of similar in that regard. So it that, that's where my mind had gone. That's brilliant. I'm glad you brought that up because that's probably exactly why I liked it. Anybody else want to throw in on their thoughts on the, on the final scene there? Cole? I, at this point, was <laughs> kind of tired with this movie. And I had grown tired of a lot of the same them doing the same thing over and over and over in this movie with in terms of these like weird flashbacks with like the grainy and all this stuff. I mean, it, it was very reminiscent of what I would see in like a student film of they learned a cool skill of how to do these cool like flashbacks and fades and like making it grainy and stuff like that. And they just kept doing it. And then at the end, like the last one was probably was definitely the best. And I thought it was, you know. I thought you uh, said some very nice things about it, but at this point I was just tired. It was like, you have done this you know, 12 times in this film. This is a 90-minute film, and you've done it every 10 minutes. I just, I can't, like, do something different. <laughs> so that was my opinion of it. <clears throat> Anybody else going to follow that up? No? Beautiful. All right, let's pivot away from, from that. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of the creation of this movie. Uh, So I was talking earlier and I wanted everyone to kind of throw in on what they wanted to talk about here. And Kelly said it best when she commented that the title of the discussion should be editing the underappreciated aspect of movie making only noticed when it goes awry. So Kelly, I kind of want you to lead a little bit of discussion here on the editing aspect of this film, why we thought it was poor or maybe good i suppose and kind of just your thoughts in general on on film editing and kind of where we bring ourselves today okay i will expose myself and what my review might be later coming up good i think that the source material for this movie and the themes and questions that it asks and the well i'll leave it there i think that is almost like 10 out of 10 for me i love what this movie is asking us and what it's asking us to explore. And it's very philosophical in a very, not very, if you just say narcissistic, it means very. So in that kind of way though, but so paint it in that kind of brush. It's such an interesting place to pull all this stuff from. Then you throw in the actors of varying performance. You throw in the score, which 
for me was forgettable. I don't have any notes on the score. Throw in the cinema. Yeah, we haven't talked about it yet. So yeah. <laughs> throw in the cinematography. Kind of same thing for me. Probably better than average, but worse than average for A twenty four films. And you throw in then the editing, which in most movies for me, everything else I just mentioned comes first. In this movie, the editing came first because it was, in my opinion just piss poor it was all over the place it was really jarring they would drop you in a spot that made no sense in my opinion and that can be done with like an artistic interpretation but we're talking like college or even high school kind of art project it was clipped together in a way that then they could have justified by saying well it's called the Adderall Diaries clearly you're supposed to see it through the perspective of Adderall and it's like that's like something you say when you're in front of the class and people start telling you, uh, I don't really know if I like Lazy. the movie for this reason. And they're like, actually, there is a reason for it. And this is why. So it's for me, it's that editing that just wrecked this movie in the end. So, Eric, as a screenwriter and perspective film guru and the editor of our podcast, what's your opinion on it? Uh, so I agree with what Kelly said. It was piss poor editing. And so when you think of editing, though, I'll, I'll, like, put two different ends of the spectrum here. You have, like, The Shining, Stanley Kubrick movies with extremely long, uh, it's, like, not a lot of cuts and just very long scenes. And then on the very opposite end of the spectrum, I'll, I'll reference The Born Identity. Action films often have very, very fast cut editing. And it's for a reason, though. You know, it's, it's so because you want the audience to feel action and like things are moving extremely quickly and you're going from one place to another and there is actually a lot of art in editing like there's there's definitely it, it can make or break a movie it can change you know everything about a movie the the pacing of a movie is so uh quintessential to a movie being good and choosing the right pacing for it is very important and yeah this movie I, I think going back to the BDSM scenes, it was just like, just dropped us in there and then it took us back out. And then one really big uh, weird edit that I noticed was them freaking in the park and the kind of just fade into the sex scene. That was very awkward and cut oddly. Uh, maybe I'll just be salty here because I haven't uh, sold my screenplay or anything yet, but there's a lot of people in uh, Hollywood and people that get to make movies that aren't really that good and they don't deserve to uh they don't deserve the money that they got for it and they were just able to make a shit film and get money off of it and here i am working uh a mail carrier working as a mail carrier in michigan going through subarctic temperatures i have faith in you eric <laughs> you will eventually do it hey and all you film people out there listening buy this man's screenplay anyway <laughs> Cole, I'll take the same conversation about, um, you know, this idea of editing. And I'm going to ask you, can this conversation be expanded into editing things that we don't like about ourselves or the world? Because in this movie, right, we get a lot of this idea of portraying something that may not necessarily be the truth or portraying a certain side about you while hoping other people don't find out about it. So kind of what did you think about maybe that whole lesson and kind of just that perspective in general yeah i mean like <clears throat> you know whenever 
you meet someone new or you're, you know, especially in like the dating world, when you go on a date with someone, you, you, you know, edit yourself to put your best foot forward, especially if you like the person and you want to um, kind of portray the best you that you can be, even though we all have interesting past or things that we're not proud of and stuff. And we also, the older you get and the, it's memories are very interesting and, and cool thing to explore in terms of how you remember things and, and, and how you interpret things that happened and, and it kind of gets to changes more and more with your emotion and as you get older and further away from what it actually occurred. Um, this movie, again, I really like that concept, but it did such a terrible job and the editing was part of the reason why I already went on my, you know, movie uh, school kid rant about how he learned a new trick and that he just fucking abused this power of using it over and over and over in this film. Um, and maybe that's uh, a lesson that, you know, editing yourself, everyone wants to better themselves. It's very difficult. It's hard to, to edit yourself, so to speak, and like make yourself better or change things, you know, the way you are. And maybe that's uh, film editing is also very difficult. It seems to be uh, a problem that they have in this film. So all in all, I did not like the editing this film so Blaze, why don't you bring us home with this conversation in general anyway what are your thoughts about the editing and kind of maybe some of the cinematography choices that they made around those edits um, and kind of what your opinion on is around that um so i everyone said everything that i feel about the editing i think we'd be beating a dead horse if i talked about the editing uh as far as the cinematography i love the cinematography i thought for a non-action film like eric said like born identity they really like those uh, scenes of them just on their motorcycles, the way they incorporated slow motion, the way that it wasn't just, I, I, I've, I say this a hundred times because either they do it or they don't, but a lot of dialogue scenes are AB cameras. And if you divert away from that, you actually have my respect because it's just so easy to do a two camera shot and get the scene done with. But it was actually like, you know, when they were in his apartment, they showed all the angles, you know, the bar scene was... It was maybe sort of like, you know, always sunny, like in the way they shot the long shot. But, you know, it was a little forgivable. But the way that they generally shot the film, at least every scene was interesting. Uh, you may not like it. and The editing may be terrible. But the way they shot every scene was at least from like a new form perspective. It wasn't just a Dutch angle or it wasn't just A-B exposition dump. So I do respect the film in that respect. As far as the editing goes, like you guys said, it was god-awful. Uh, I hope that, you know, maybe they were trying to be like, Adderall Diaries, huh? Listen to art. But I don't think this movie was even smart enough for that. I just think it was terrible editing and, you know, like, move on to the next project, I guess. Anybody else want to throw in any cinematography bits? Uh, any things you enjoyed? Long shots? Editing? I mean, we kind of beat that to a horse like you mentioned. Yeah, but, uh, when we were talking cinematography, when Blaze was just bringing up what he did... There were some spots I appreciated now that I'm thinking about it. And it's in terms of like color and hue. All these sex scenes have like this blue and purple. A lot of the apartment shots and shots with his friend Roger, right? They all have kind of like a, an orange kind of like color. Like there's emotions that then are like given to us just based on that alone. So, I mean, that was a conscious choice that they made. So I would be remiss to not mention it absolutely 
One last thing that I want to talk about before we get to our final ratings is I want to move the conversation onto why we think this film got made. I know we kind of alluded to it around a little bit with some of our actor discussions, but I always like to put on my tinfoil hat and try to figure out what the author's intent. But as Eric talks about often with the death of the author literary trope, intention is one thing, was actually accomplished might be something completely different. So we want to take a stab at their interpretation of what Stephen Elliott or Pamela Romanowski meant when they penned this story. Eric, what do you think? Uh, I do think that the point of this whole film was to kind of show that we remember things uh, so that our ego can save ourselves. Like we have, as Freud you know, used to say, the, the superego, the ego, and the id, and the way we remember things is to kind of save our own ego. And I, I think that is what uh, this film is trying to say. But uh, yeah, again, you know, we've said several times didn't do a good job. But I, I also found this interesting in reading about the film. Stephen Elliott didn't like this film and said, like, this wasn't a good portrayal of his book. So uh, I guess James Franco actually purchased the rights to the book. And then um, Pamela Romanowski wrote the screenplay and had it workshopped at uh, uh, Sundance. And then uh, I'm guessing James Franco and Pamela Romanowski went on to make the film. And when you don't get the author's approval uh, from a film, it's it probably won't work out well. Look at Avatar The Last Airbender and M. Night Shyamalan. So, uh, you know, like, I, I, I think that overall they were stab- trying to take a stab at what Stephen Elliott was trying to say in the book, and uh, they just completely failed at it blaze what's your two cents yeah eric basically took the words out of my mouth um, oh, i'm sorry buddy <laughs> yeah no but that's i think that's an excellent point i think it's about um you know we always like i think the line like not verbatim but i'm ad-libbing the line in the movie was we never take other people's words for granted on how they remember it but we never self-examine ourselves on how we remember things and I think that's very important because we always, like, at least myself, I can't speak for any of you, um, I always try to put my best foot forward. I always try to put my best qualities in front of me. Elliot purposely put his worst qualities in front of him, which, again, is kind of an interesting idea. Like, on paper, that's, like, really cool. Execution? Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. I really do feel like, like Cole kept saying, like, the the intention of this film is a lot higher than maybe the... Uh, the product we got because of all the through lines that this movie is trying to portray when really it should have focused on one or two main plot points and rolled with that. So I, uh, yeah, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to ask a- you a question actually when you were done, but um, so I, I know, okay, you're, you're the criminologist here. Uh, eyewitness testimony isn't extremely unreliable in uh, tr- criminal oh, yeah. Yeah. And- yeah. No, no. Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, like, uh, they, I wonder, so they had the kid on trial uh, during the murder trial, and I was wondering, they, they could have, like, been trying to make a point here, like, okay, eyewitness testimony is very unreliable. Well, we can relate that to this guy trying to remember his whole life. I don't know, I just put two and two together there and was wondering your thoughts on well, eyewitness I, te- testimony and everything, too, but yeah. <laughs> I could see, and actually, well, you actually put up a pretty good point, because that kid was probably put on the stand as a character witness, as opposed to an actual eyewitness. So um, the way that, you know, the youth portrays their father is usually within uh, a positive light. That's why, you know, you'd put him on the stand. So 
I think Elliot is probably the uh, inverse of that, where he looks at his dad in a terrible light when really, like, his dad wasn't a great guy, but he did have his best interest in heart. So I think maybe it was the inversion of that. But yeah, as an I like that kid would like that testimony probably didn't go over well. Uh, at least what, what depends on the jury instructions and everything like that. But that's not important in this discussion. But uh, I'm sure the credibility would be very low for uh, a child, especially that impressionable. So, Kelly, why do you think this film got made? What do you think the motivations were? I don't know. <laughs> That's a fair answer. I love that answer. That's fine. I mean, we don't know, right? We're we're not there. We weren't part of it. The facts are James Franco worked with Stephen Elliott on About Cherry, uh, which was an earlier film in 2012 about a young girl turned sex worker. Like Eric mentioned, he bought the rights to the film because he must have really liked it. According to an interview with Pamela Romanowski, Franco was the one who was going to be trying to do the writing and the directing for a long time and just could never figure it out. And that's when he turned to someone else to kind of help out with the whole process. So, you know, we don't know the reasons, but it clearly happened. And here we are. I did see in an interview that Franco and our director went to film school together. Yes, so yep, I did that. That connects be, one, one piece of the puzzle. It could be something as simple as James Franco read the book and liked it. <laughs> you know? And he's like, yeah, well, I yeah. have money. I'm going to make this film. Yeah, I'm going to try to. Yeah. yeah. Right, maybe, exactly. I'll, maybe I'll get an Oscar. You know, yeah. that's kind of like the, <laughs> yeah, that'll, throw that'll the be dart at the board, you know? All right. Well, I feel like this is the natural spot in the discussion when we are going to go towards our A24 ratings. Does anyone else have anything they want to throw in? Any comments, any opinions, any secondary things or primary things they wanted to talk about before we get to that point? Yeah. um, Did you know that uh, Stephen Elliott made a film about making this film called After Adderall? And it's all in black and white. And it's a retelling of him being involved in the filming of this film. So that happened. <laughs> and that's after he disproved of the film being created? Do you think he made that because of like, wanting I to think tell his own so, story? Especially considering the person who d- plays the director slash screenwriter is not a woman, and it's actually the guy who plays Dexter. So he went from like a blonde woman, Pamela, and was like, nah, fuck her. We're going with a man, and we're going to do Dexter, and it's going to be all in black and white, and yeah. I'm going to star in it, and we're going to use yeah. my name, Stephen Elliott. That yeah, that no, that's crazy. Follows and makes total sense for what I'm understanding as him as a person based on those book reviews that oh, I yeah. read. People have signed up for his like email blasts, and someone <laughs> in these reviews, shout out to Goodreads, said they're just as much of narcissistic dribble as the rest of his novels. And the fact that he had a movie come out that he doesn't approve of, and he's like, I'm a I'm gonna retell it from my perspective, me me me, just. That follow yeah. that follows suit. He, he's got what like, ten books or something, and they're all about him. Like I write about a different subject matter, man. Anywho, <laughs> on that note, we're gonna move on to reviews. So, who wants to go first? Any volunteers? No I'll volunteers. Cole. I, Cole. I was pretty uh, pretty adamant about my opinion of this movie. Uh, not a fan. <laughs> <You> think? <laughs> yeah, not not a fan. Um, a lot of issues I had with this film. Um, it was also one of those films where, again, I felt like I just like zoned out and missed a whole bunch of it. And I went back and watched parts of it to realize I missed nothing. And it's just that's how this film 
like story and everything goes along. So this hour and 27 minute film, I probably spent two hours watching it, which is even more infuriating. Uh, having to go back and, and verify things. Editing's bad. The acting was bad. There's just a lot of bad. Uh, my favorite thing that I got out of this film was it made $11,700 in the box office, and there was 318 people credited, which means that if you divide that out evenly, every person got $36.79. <laughs> so they could buy themselves a ticket to go see this shitty fucking movie. Uh, I give this thing a D minus 24. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, you're up next. The source material for me is, like I said, 10 out of 10. The questions raised, I loved anything that was in, like, type. Both that beginning question and that those end, like, kind of results of, like, I want to leave you lingering with these kind of thoughts. Those just stood out to me a lot. There's a lot to be said in this movie about... I love, like, the victim versus villain mentality. I love that you are so eager to dismiss or question other people's memories, but you never really question your own. You just, every time you remember something, you're only remembering the last time you remembered it. So you're just making these stories deeper and deeper in your head and what happens when you tell them. If you're the victim of your own narrative... How else does that affect your psyche? And how can you repair those kind of bonds? And how deep does it go in your lineage? These are all really interesting things. However, it is a movie review at the end of the day. And the way that it was actually shown on the screen to me was not as interesting. I mean, that said, there was no parts of this movie where I wanted to close my eyes or turn it off. I wanted to see what happened next. I was involved in it and there's even a part of me that wants to watch it again so these are all there as well we've touched on all the bad parts i know they haven't come out of my mouth but there's few things that everyone else has said that i disagree with and one thing that i'll add that i just need to hammer home again is the gratuitous amounts of showing us the same like home footage to give us memories there's more creative ways to do that. If you show it to us a couple times, we get it. It's a short movie. You don't have to feed it to us every time to fill up the space. That really bothered me as well. I'm still going to give it probably a higher rater than anybody else will. We'll see. Um, I'm going to let it land at a C plus 24. Well, how about that? Blaze, I'm going to have you come in after that so we can separate the Das Kiskas. Okay, I'm separating the kiskas per huge. <laughs> Not per. That didn't make wait, sense. Wait, wait, hold what? on. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, Continue. I didn't love this movie, but I did like this movie. Uh, a lot of the sentiments that Kelly had, I really, really, really thought that the message of this film was very, very important. I think that the way that we lie to ourselves, I think that the way that we interact with other humans um, is very important to this film. And although I don't necessarily agree with the redemption, I do think that him and uh, Roger getting back together was very reminiscent to me and my own friends when we get into fights. Like, it's like I'm very upset with this person, but 
at the end of the day, you're still my homie. You're still my ride or die. You know, like we have so much history together. So I totally like, I, I love that, that whole hydrangea scene. You guys talked about him dancing and stuff like that. But I, I have very similar stories to like a friend spraying coffee out of my hand with a hose. You know, it, it, it was very, it very hit home with me. The editing was terrible. The acting was fine. I, uh, I wish since they had Fez give a cameo, I wish, uh, Ed Harris's character was played by Red Foreman. That would have really brought it full circle. I, I really liked Amber Heard. I know I'm the only one that liked Amber Heard in this movie. Um, I thought James Franco's character for a guy who's playing a narcissist, uh, masochist, kind of wannabe bad boy, but really a fragile egg inside. I mean, like Eric said, he was playing himself. And opposed to the first movie we reviewed, Charles Swan, where Charlie Sheen was playing himself, I think... James Franco did a lot better job at doing this. So just like Kelly, I, I'm so wishy-washy on this film because there's so many good things that came out of it. Um, I do recommend it. And I, I think I'm going to land with Kelly. I think I'm going to give it a C plus. And uh, I really think it's a pick your poison type of movie. You're either going to love it or you hate it. I, I really want to watch it again and see how I feel about it. All right. I'm going to slide in here next. There's a lot of what I believe about this movie. Um, as per usual, when we do this with five of us, um, the opinions kind of get echoed and parroted. At one point or another, we were discussing the themes of this movie more than the actual execution, and I've kind of held on to that. And I know, Blaze and Kelly, you both have alluded to that, that this movie asks a bigger question. And that's the only thing I took away from it, was that big question about how you look at yourself and how that interception and how that looks like in other people's lives. I didn't want to bring too much of that topic into this movie discussion because it's truly a review of the movie and not about the psychology of the things involved in the film itself. While we do touch on it, I think that's the major redeeming factor in this film. I'm not going to beat a dead horse on the performances or the editing or any of those other things. And I do think that at the heart of all of this is a very narcissistic author who wants nothing more than publication about his name and his face and everything about him. But it does give us a kind of a cool perspective on, on what that looks like and how trauma can affect people without them necessarily knowing and what that memory of that trauma looks like. We certainly didn't touch on it and I don't, presume to know if any of us have ever experienced any of those things but i would like to think that we would probably have some sort of of similar reactions to some of those extremes in that sense i feel like this movie did a good job of asking those questions and making me think uh, all of those other you know minor details uh, or major depending on if you're really looking at it from a film perspective it does matter um and for that i won't give it any higher than what i'm going to say here but I do think it's worth watching in the sense of asking that question. What is memory and what does that look like in your relationships? So for all of those reasons, I'm going to go ahead and give it a, a C24. Kind of just right down the middle. There wasn't anything fantastic about it other than the themes. And the rest of it didn't detract enough for me to go, this is drizzling shits. So that's my uh, opinion. And Eric, bring us home. Uh, so after talking about this, I, I do think that I kind of agree on the theme. I, I think that the theme is interesting and philosophical. It makes you think, it you know, like how we remember things, you know, after this film, maybe we're going to go back and we're going to be like, you know, what do I remember from my childhood or misremember from my childhood? You know, I, I think that that kind of question is actually a little thought provoking. So 
not a complete F for me, but um, I don't know if the source material was rich because I never read the book, but, you know, I think the dialogue could have been much better with the script. I completely agree with the home videos being way too repetitive. Again, we'll say the editing was really bad. The acting, uh, James Franco played himself. Amber Heard really pooped the bed on this one. So I was going to give this there a D minus. There it is. Um, <laughs> but, I knew we'd get one in. <laughs> yeah. I was going to give this a D minus, but this is a masochistic film, you know, about a guy who's a ma- masochist. There's no cock and ball mutilation scene, so I'm going to put this down to an E+. Plus. Well, how about that? How masochistic could he be without CBT? <laughs> without, without it, right? So, and as we like to say... No, please, Blaze, at this point, go ahead. So I'm thinking we get uh, Zev from Remember, Elliot from um, this film, and then Kreesha, and we all do a crossover film of, like, three people who don't remember shit very well, and they all go out on an adventure for, like, hidden treasure and see who finds it first. I like that. We were talking about D&D earlier. Let's all make them into characters and have them. <laughs> Elliot's the bard, obviously. All right, folks, if you are still listening at this point, we thank you. We thank you very, very much for being a loyal listener to our podcast. Please go and like and review on all of our socials. We certainly appreciate it. We're uh, we're doing our best to make our way through this uh, ridiculous library of A24. Um, and as always, if you want to come on, just shoot us an email, shoot us a text. I mean, not a text because I don't think you have our phone numbers. But, you know, get a hold of us. A24OTR at gmail.com. There we go. We have an email. And with that... This is A24 on the Rocks signing off. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We're doing the lobster next in two weeks. Oh, shit. Lobster. Great film. It's a great film, apparently. Great film. I I have no idea. Do you you like people turning into animals? (laughs) No, Tusk sucked. (laughs) Oh, shit. Never mind. (laughs) Well, not in that sense. Hey, I'm 24 on the racks.